0: You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast.
1: Welcome to this, the 75th Diamond Jubilee episode of the Apple Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Victor Marks, and joining me is Apple Insider's Editor-in-Chief, Neil Hughes. Hey, Victor, how's it going? It's fantastic. How are you? I'm all right. That's kind of a letdown. (laughs) You're brilliant. Always. I know it. So let's begin. I wanted to just begin by talking a little bit about, gosh, I think I wanted to talk about the rumors. Let's do rumors. Let's, well, we had a bunch of things, right? We had we had iPhone, we had display stuff and things like that. But But first of all, you, you've been running the beta version of iOS 10. I have. You're on beta one, is that right? Uh, yes, unfortunately. Why, why is there no beta 2?
0: That's a good question. Uh, it's going to be th- coming up on three weeks next week since uh, the launch of beta 1. Typically, Apple uh, it, it would do a two-week gap in between releases. Um, and I think that was the expectation that we would see a new beta either on Monday or Tuesday of this week. And so we do not have one. And that pains me a very great deal because uh, in order to do my day job, I have to be running um, iOS 10 and watchOS 3 on my devices and uh, they are buggy and you should not be running them. Uh, Anyone who is not doing this for a living who uh, writes about Apple should not be running the beta software on their main phone because this is meant for developers for testing. Unfortunately I don't have a spare Apple Watch and if I want to continue wearing my Apple Watch. Um, then I have to be connected to a phone running iOS 10. So I'm carrying both with me everywhere and dealing with a lot of crashes. We do not yet have a beta 2, but hopefully next week.
1: Well, I know you're looking forward to it. I wisely have chosen to not run the betas this time. so
0: That is a wise decision. I, I, uh, as much as I like the change in iOS 10 um, and at WatchOS 3, they're both fantastic. Um, not for general public consumption.
1: Well, you remember that every time I've tried a new release, right, whether it was the iOS 8 betas or the iOS 9 betas, I have encountered bizarre problems that no one can explain.
0: I know. And I can say that I had a bizarre problem that has lasted since iOS 7 with copy and paste not working properly. And I don't know what the heck happened, but installing iOS 10 beta fixed copy and paste. It actually works properly for me now. So hallelujah. That alone is quite an accomplishment and almost makes, almost makes the issues of the beta worth it for me.
1: I am glad to hear that your long time suffering is at an end. Indeed. Um, what I what I'm at a loss for is is how this issue persisted across so many different phones and releases for you. It's probably something corrupt inside your your iCloud backup that's killing it.
0: Yeah, it must be. I have no idea. This phone was um, uh, it was not a fresh install. It was a over-the-air install of beta 10, and it fixed it, and I have no idea why. But uh, again, this persisted over phones and OS releases and everything, and I continue to have an issue where I would copy something, go to another app, hit paste, and it would paste something, not that I had copied something from prior, and then I would have to go back and hit copy again, sometimes a third time. So uh, I am <laughs> extremely thankful that it has apparently been fixed with iOS 10. And I've Googled it in many attempts to fix it and found that other people were having similar problems, so uh, hopefully this is something that Apple uh, quietly fixed uh, in the new release that will uh, fix that issue for everybody else that was experiencing it.
1: Cool. Now, let me let me talk about this for a second because I, I as you know, I'm a fan of all things historical, including technology history, right? Right. And if you've been watching my Twitter feed, you've seen that I've been posting things under the, the hashtag Computer Museum lately. Mm-hmm. I have been digging through, and I have been unearthing crazy, crazy old stuff in terms of technology. And we wrote an article about how the iPhone is turning nine this year. Mm-hmm. Right? So, for, first of all, did you write that article? I did. What was in it? Tell us for it, because you wrote it. You can tell us best.
0: Well, it was just kind of how the iPhone um, – is at a crossroads right now and it was a little bit of a history lesson as to what happened with the first generation iphone and some of the mistakes that were made that apple course corrected in in some cases like adjusting the pricing almost immediately um and some a little more over time such as um well the addition of copy and paste for example took a little while uh the the app store didn't launch for another year but Um, it was just kind of putting all that in perspective for where Apple is now, having just come off of their first ever quarter with year over year decline in iPhone sales, where obviously the iPhone is an astronomical success and continues to be, especially if you're not someone who's focused on growth and just looking at the dollars and cents of it. The iPhone is, is a cash printing machine for Apple. Um, so, you know, it's an interesting place where Apple's at right now, where if the company wants to stimulate growth and return to growth, uh, what are they going to do to make that happen? As we're kind of on the cusp of the launch of the so-called iPhone 7, which is expected to look largely like the iPhone success, um, just kind of talking about um, w- those those things that Apple did in the beginning, like the $200 price cut two months after it launched to address some of the issues that they had right out of the gate. You know, it's easy for people to forget that the first iPhone, which came out in 2007, um, June of 2007, so we just celebrated the anniversary
1: June on the 29th. 29th, 2007.
0: Uh, the first iPhone only sold like 6 million units in its entire lifetime, that first generation model. I mean, 6 million units is... Nothing today. Like Apple sells that many phones in a couple weeks. Yeah, every mentions that
1: a failure these days.
0: Yeah, we're talking about a a year's worth of sales after they finally replaced it with the iPhone 3G. But that right. first but, but generation let's, iPhone. Let's
1: put some perspective on that. Right, with the landscape at the time was that before the iPhone, mobile phones were either uh, dumb phones or feature phones, as we call them today. Right. You know, the hottest phone back then, the the phone that everyone wanted to have back then. Was the Motorola Razer? <laughs> yes, which was which was at the top used, of the heap
0: for years. I mean, it was well, not as quickly evolving of an industry back
1: then as it is now. Certainly, it's not exactly. I mean, there were definitely revolutions in terms of what you were able to do back then. Things like the uh, the Nokia Symbian S60 series, where it was a a smartphone platform, and you could totally run applications from the Nokia App Store on it. Or or the Sony versions that were UIQ, which was similar, there there were definitely smartphones out there, and I'm not even mentioning BlackBerry <clears throat> or uh, or Moto Q. But-,
0: but I mean, compare like think about uh, Windows Mobile 2002, 2003,
1: mm-hmm. yeah, and then
0: think about how little it had changed by 2007 when the iPhone came out. I mean, let's put it, it got this- color. I had a Windows, I had a, <laughs> I had a Windows Mobile 2003 device that was color. Um, yeah. It was a Dell Axum PDA.
1: I remember, I remember um, that.
0: And uh, that platform really did not evolve in that span from 2003 when the OS shipped until like 2007 when the iPhone came out. Really was still looking the same. Was still a start button based interface, stylus based interface. I mean. And to put that in perspective, think about the iPhone. Here we are in 2016. Think about four years ago, what your iPhone was like.
1: Wait, 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 just because I want to go back to Palm for a second. Because Palm was the originator of a lot of this, right? Palm was the original pocket assistant. Palm was the the first stylus-based. And the whole Palm interface was predicated on copying um, Macintosh System 6 or 7, basically. But Windows Mobile was the market leader at that time. Well, so, here's an interesting piece that I wanted to bring up, is that if you remember, in 2005 – so, Palm had this history, and, and our own Daniel Aaron Dilzer wrote about this years ago at Roughly Drafted. The, um, Palm had this history of being the hardware and software company and then selling off the software and being just the hardware right. and licensing the software back from the, the other company, and they did this off and on repeatedly – and, and the benefit of doing it like this was that the software company could license the Palm OS out to Sony, Qualcomm, Kyocera, and others, and and therefore there would be more Palm OS devices. And the last time they did this exercise, Access bought the software, bought the OS, mm-hmm. and was giving them a hard time about doing it because Palm had bought a BOS and was going to run BOS. We were going to have our first true um Multi-threaded, multitasking smartphone via Palm running BOS. That future never came to be because Access said, "If you do that, we will no longer license you the Palm OS." And by the way, we're going to stop licensing the Palm OS, and you're going to have to pick up Linux from us, and it's going to be Access Linux on Palm. Mm-hmm. And so their answer was a, a "screw me, screw you" move, where they said we will license in Windows Mobile, and they sold half of the Palm Trios with Palm OS, and the other half with Windows Mobile. Mm-hmm. And all of this was happening in January of 2007.
0: Yeah, I mean, don't forget that the best uh, phone OS you could get at that time was HTC Sense was doing their own uh, skin over Windows. Oh, the
1: Diamond interface.
0: Which was basically saying Windows Mobile is terrible. It's not finger-friendly. You need a stylus. It uses a start button. It's a nightmare. Let's.
1: Well, the problem with the HTC interface was that it was beautiful for about the first layer and a half, right. and as soon as you tried to do anything, you were dumped right back into Windows Mobile.
0: And that's one of the problems that uh, you know still persists on many Android devices to this day. I mean, not every company has the uh, resources of Samsung, and even Samsung is not really a software company. But you end up with these you know unique user interfaces on. Uh, Android that lead to inconsistencies within the platform. Yeah,
1: well, Google apps. would rather that you, you didn't do that at all. They, well, they would rather you just ship stock Android and deal with it.
0: Right, but you're not going to be able to stop Samsung from doing that because they have to differentiate their phones. So what was once a problem continues to be a problem, just different companies and the names have changed. But um, yeah, you know, if you look back on that and how stagnant the smartphone industry was before the iPhone came in, it took a little while, and certainly it, until the iPhone 3G hit, for things to really start to accelerate
1: well, the way it, that they it, did. I don't think it was stagnant at all. There were a lot of interesting attempts at doing things, but they were all within a a well-boundaried sort of. Uh, space right you know there there were the nokia s40 phones that were music players also there were the sony walkman phones that were music players like the walkman 880 um there there were a number of attempts at doing things to differentiate from what phones had been
0: i I mean clearly you're nostalgic for this area era but those phones were all garbage Mm,
1: they some of them were actually quite good, but none of them were as interesting or good as the first iPhone.
0: Right. The iPhone was a paradigm changer without yeah. question. And you got to remember, too, back then, nobody owned a smartphone, nobody had a data plan. They were expensive. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, now you're looking at you know most. I had people.
1: GPRS data, and I had a Nokia. I had a couple of. different You are Nokia not Symbian most phones. people, Victor.
0: You are an man. early adopter enthusiast. You? Your mom did not own a Windows Phone smartphone or Palm or anything like that.
1: My dad had the Kyocera Palm phone, mm-hmm. and before that and after that, he had the Handspring Trio phone with the smartphone module. And was his company paying
0: for it, or was he buying it himself?
1: Um, IBM paid for at least one of those.
0: Yeah. I mean, people weren't buying smartphones the way they are now. You know, most phone sales now of all phones are smartphones. Remember back, you know, Nokia was the worldwide leader. Oh, the Communicator. Do you remember the Communicator? Nokia controlled 90% of the smartphone market up until like 2010 when when things really started to shift globally. But yeah. um, for those first few years of the iPhone, smartphones were still a very small share of the overall mobile phone business, certainly in the, the years since. Razor. Yeah, certainly in the years since it's it's changed quite a bit, but um really the the iPhone was the tipping point in so many ways in terms of accessibility in terms of demand in terms of um adoption uh without the iPhone the whole I mean the iPhone literally changed the entire world of computing and technology. Um you know the you iPhone I have your first iPhone. I bought my first iPhone in September of 2007 uh the day that Apple announced the price drop. So You still have it. I do. I was a uh, very poor newspaper reporter at the time. Um, and repeat yourself. <laughs> I, um, they announced the price drop, and I was a T Mobile customer at the time. So I might, if, uh,
1: if if was so you was had a jailbreak to be able to get it to work on. T-Mobile. I had to go to
0: an AT and T store because technically it was a subsidized phone. So there was a weird thing where AT and T wanted to set it up in the store because Apple wanted them to do it to make sure that everything was good, but then they backed off of that because it was they could, because the
1: activation servers were crashing, so they just let people start well, taking their phones home. so so here's what happened originally, right? I bought it on day one uh-huh. and. The way that I bought it on day one was I I I just I couldn't handle waiting in line, so I had a friend who lived in Oregon and waited in line in Oregon, and then shipped it to me overnight after he waited in line and got it. Mm-hmm. And so he, he was in Portland, I think, and or somewhere outside Beaverton, who knows? And he shipped me the iPhone, and I had it the next day, basically. And when the price drop hit, which, as you said, was was September. Mm-hmm. I bought it in June. Price drop happened in September. They gave out uh, hundred gift, gift, card. gift cards to everyone. And those gift cards came in great useful for many, many users because when it came time for the 3G, people who had that gift card ready used it to go towards the purchase of the 3G.
0: Yeah, except you paid $200 more than the phone was worth two months later, so...
1: Ah, uh, but you had it. You so the
0: when they, they you- launched the... There was an 8-gig model that sold for $600, and there was a 4-gig model that sold for $500. Yes. Uh, both of them um, launched on June 29th. In September, Apple cut the price by 200 bucks and basically discontinued the 4-gig, sold the remaining inventory. That day that it was announced um, was also about the same time that they had first jailbroken the iPhone, so I knew that I could run it on on t-mobile i was not a at&t customer and since it was a subsidized fund you technically had to be an at&t customer to buy the well box. it was sim locked i went into a at&t store they wanted to activate it i told them that i was buying it for a gift for somebody and that they would bring it back um so yes i lied to the at&t store somebody come get me um and then uh because i couldn't afford a data plan on a on a uh on you know the, the prices well, that they had at that time, I had uh, the at um,
1: data plan. You were going to get was the the unlimited data plan at that time. Well, it which, was
0: expensive, and I couldn't afford yeah. it.
1: So Mikey I still on, has his unlimited data plan, grandfathered from that time. I was on T-Mobile, and
0: I hacked it to run. And then I had um, a T-Mobile WAP a WAP plan, mm-hmm. which basically allowed limited internet. But there was a jailbreak install that you could do. It wasn't. Uh, what it later became with, like, their own app store and stuff, like, you had to do everything kind of coded by hand with, the
1: you know, tutorials
0: online. But Yeah, City uh,
1: was not originally an app store. It became one.
0: Right. So I had to hack it so that it would reroute all internet traffic through the single port that T-Mobile allowed. Because it turned out that T-Mobile at the time, when they were selling these, it was, like, I think it was $3 a month for data. Uh, and it was
1: slow as hell. But... um the, well, for, first of all, all data at that time was, right? You were using they, GPRS.
0: Right, so they weren't checking the type of data that was going through. So you you would forward all data through a specific port, and then the phone worked. You could browse the web on the go. You could uh, The only thing you couldn't get when I did that was visual voicemail, but everything else – Uh, Well, that's because T-Mobile
1: didn't run visual voicemail servers at that time.
0: Right. It was an AT&T exclusive. It required their servers and all that. But other than that, um, the phone worked great, and I kept it for until the iPhone 4 came out. So I stuck around with the OG iPhone for a long time, Um, and that was actually – I got the iPhone 4 because I just started working at Apple Insider, Um, and so that was the only reason that I had upgraded at that point was I kind of had to. Um, but prior to that, um, you know, just in terms of trying to save money and being a poor reporter at a newspaper, that was uh, that was how I scratched by.
1: Nice. I had the the iPhone that I bought on day one, and um, I was at Macworld when it was announced. I was at Macworld again the, the year later when iOS 2 was announced. Now, early on, there was no App Store, and... Maps were not turn-by-turn turn with with the use of the GPS. They were sort of assisted GPS, and you you could step through the steps on the turns, but it wouldn't recognize where you were and adjust the turns for you at that time. Right. And, there, like I said, there was no app store. You had the apps that were there, and you had the internet. You had Safari. Yep. And web apps. Web apps. And... Web apps. and they were surprisingly capable. You could do a lot with them. You know, OpenGL let you do cool transforms where you could do animations to to flip cards kind of thing and and really make the web app feel like a native app in a lot of ways. Right. It was really cool and and the you know, beauty of that is okay, fine, you're using the network resource to pull it down, but it could store it in some cache on the phone and that you always had the app up to date, you never had to worry about updates, you always had you know, it was it was either available or it wasn't, and it was going to be great because there was no worry about viruses or other vulnerabilities. And you didn't it was know it was just lunch. its own thing. But we, you know, the the, the outcry and and the hackers and uh, people like Erica Sadoun, who is a developer who used to work for uh, TUAW, the unofficial Apple weblog when it was a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she wrote about along with people like Craig Hockenberry, who behind Icon Factory and Twitterific, they they wrote about how to unofficially write applications for the iPhone at that time. And people made
0: really cool jailbroken applications before you could install, um,
1: you know, app before there was an app store. right. Using the work laid down by Sadoon and, and Hockenberry.
0: There was actually one app that was kind of mind blowing at the time. It's funny to look back and be like, you know, who cares? But, um, one of the early demos for the microsoft surface not the surface that we know now but no no the coffee table the coffee table which was announced before the iphone or around the same time one of the demos they had was a series of photos laying on a table and they were like kind of stacking them and resizing them and moving them around and so someone made an app for the iphone before there was an app store on cydia that you could install that was you could take photos from your collection and move them around on the screen and resize them and put them in front of each other and stuff like that. And I remember showing that to people and like it blew their mind because it was using multi-touch and there were all these items on the screen at once and the screen was essentially just a blank canvas to do something with. And it's funny to look back and and realize you know how how silly that was. Today term-
1: that would be a technology demo, not an app.
0: <laughs> right, but uh, you know at the time that was like you know especially when you were thinking about Microsoft Surface and it was this giant table and all that stuff like this was something in your pocket that was doing that exact same capability it was it was really quite incredible
1: well so the the original blackberry quote was one of the founders of blackberry got an iphone and took it apart and his response was my god they 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 somehow shrunk down and shoved a mac inside a phone and and that was literally what we'd arrived at yeah i still have my original iphone i yeah, still have well. I still have, I think I have two iPhone 3Gs hanging around right now, maybe three of them. Um, I I think the
0: the greatest testament you could give to the original iPhone is how how many of the design principles not only remain in the current iPhone in terms of where everything's located and how it works, etc., but mm-hmm. also in how Apple has revisited them and come back to them over the years. For example, the iPhone 3G went with the plastic back, the iPhone 4 switched to a glass back, and uh, they kept those uh, uh, sharp edges on the 4 and the 5 and the 5S. But now you look at the wait, iPhone. Wait,
1: wait, look at your Apple Watch in profile and look at your original iPhone.
0: Right. Now look at your iPhone 5S, or I'm sorry, look at your iPhone 6S and your iPhone 6. Metal back curved edges a very 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 similar design to the first iphone when you break it down in that way obviously not as thin and not
1: as elegant no but your apple watch is every bit as thick
0: (laughs) oh yeah it is so um yeah it's it's um it's it's interesting to look back and realize how much foresight apple had in the design of the iPhone in something that was not only iconic, but that could last and you could pick up an iPhone right now. And, and, and I have my original classic iPhone and when I feel it in my hand, it just feels right. It's, it's well-constructed. Um, yeah, it's thick. And, uh, but I mean, honestly, if they sold a phone like that right now that had like a great camera and a thick battery that would last a couple days, I'd probably buy it.
1: They've come a long way.
0: Maybe a 10th generation iPhone next year, right?
1: yeah you know i i I've been digging through and and posting things like I said on twitter and I found the uh all of the mac magazines from back then uh, the mac world and some of the others mac user from from the announcement of the original iphone with the uh, with the first one on the cover story at mac and world it's, yeah yeah it's um you know the first question is why on earth did I save all that stuff but the the second qu- you know, thing is is it's it's really like you say it's interesting to look back at what we what has been mm-hmm and where we've been. And I still, you know, Mikey laughs at me for this, but but at time to time, I power on the uh, the iPhone 3G and the original iPhone. And some of the apps are still able to work. You know, the, the servers that they talked to for things on the internet are still there, and in some cases still alive and still talking the same language. Now, a lot of that's going to change real soon because iOS 10 uh, requires HTTPS for all connections. So, I, I fully expect that many of the things that I was using on those old iPhones are, are pretty much dead.
0: I think the last OS you can install is 3.1.2 on the first iPhone. I think that's the most up-to-date it can be.
1: Th- that's correct. And three one three and 4 were allowed on the 3G.
0: I actually, after I got my iPhone 4 and still have my old iPhone hanging around, because I like to do... Fun stuff with technology, just for the heck of it. I did a hack where I installed Android on my uh, first gen iPhone, mm. uh, and there was also a mod on Cydia that took iOS 4 features and ported them back to uh, 3.1.2. Yeah. Um. So that was pretty cool.
1: Yeah. One of these days, I'm going to try and roll back my original iPhone to to iOS 1.0, or rather, iPhone OS 1.0. And I, I have the, you know, I have the original Apple TV, right? Mm-hmm. And the I've hot rolled plate. that, the hot plate, and I've rolled that back to Apple TV OS one. And I actually then had to use it. I had, a I had a requirement where I actually had to use it, so I had to go ahead and update it to Apple TV OS two to be able to use it again. And um, the nice thing about the current version of iTunes, you know, it's it's kind of incredible. Here we are in 2016. And iTunes 12 is able to talk to the original Apple TV.
0: Who says and Apple we, yep. doesn't offer legacy support?
1: They totally offered legacy support, and it it updated and it synchronized the movies that I had to have on it. So here's what I was doing. I, I know all of our listeners think I'm nuts and wish I would move on to something interesting. But I promise, I will. But I I had a movie that had been edited in iMovie for an event. And there were a series of projectors on a wall pointing at different screens that had come down motorized. And I needed something that could run the movie reliably on demand. And I didn't want to use a laptop. Uh Because laptops have a thousand things that can go wrong. Right. And so, I couldn't do it with a modern Apple TV because the modern Apple TV, even though it has storage, doesn't really have a way to save movies to it locally that I could think of. Uh Mm-hmm. Someone's going to tell me that I'm wrong, that there's an app for that and everything, and I, I appreciate it if they do. <laughs> but at the time, I couldn't think of how the answer was. But the, the original Apple TV was essentially an iPod with an HDMI port on it and, and synced the same way. And so, I, I loaded the current new 2016 movie onto the 2007 Apple TV, connected it to the, the port in the wall that ran the projectors in the ceiling, and used the infrared remote to press play. And it just worked, which is just what it should do. That's pretty cool. It was excellent. The event went off without a hitch. That's awesome. Brilliant. So we talked about that. But, you know, a couple, of weeks, ago, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking before WWDC about how Apple was going to make a display, and it was going to have Thunderbolt, and it was going to have an external graphic unit in it. and And we were totally wrong.
0: Well... Uh, I didn't think they were going to do that. That was just a rumor that was out there. (laughs) Um, What happened was WWDC came and passed, and not only did they not release one, but uh, they also, the week after WWDC, discontinued the uh, Thunderbolt display. It is no more. Um, They are no longer... They're selling their available inventory, and then that's it. Now, according to yet another rumor, Apple is still working on the... Supposed model with an integrated graphics card Uh, And as we've discussed before This makes sense uh, For a variety of reasons But the biggest one is If you were to invest in a 12-inch MacBook Which is underpowered uh, To allow for its thin design and battery life uh, You couldn't drive all the pixels on a big monitor uh, Which is a problem Uh, That would limit Apple's ability to sell that Especially as they're pushing for thinner and lighter devices So the expectation is that Apple is going to release a new Thunderbolt display that is going to have an integrated graphics card in the display itself that will act as an external graphics card for a MacBook, MacBook Pro, whatever. Uh, This is technically possible and has been done with Macs and is currently being done commercially on Windows PCs because the speed of Thunderbolt is fast enough that it actually has the bandwidth to allow a graphics card to work externally. Now, I wouldn't um, expect this external graphics card capability to be some sort of super-powered gaming rig. Uh, I think this is more about just driving the pixels on a retina display uh, for a 27-inch Thunderbolt retina display. I don't see this turning into, you know, some high-end GeForce GTX graphics card.
1: You we're, know. we're not playing Crisis or Warcraft right. or whatever. You're not going to be buying
0: this machine for Half-Life Three if it ever comes out. So,
1: oh come on!
0: I wish. Um, I I am uh, a. Former PC gamer, I guess, is the way I would put it. I used to build... Recovering,
1: recovering, if you will.
0: I just don't have the space and the time, really. Building a Windows PC was a lot of fun for somebody like myself who's nerdy and likes working with gadgets. And I liked upgrading the components. And, you know, it was it was a lot of time. And back then I had a lot of time on my hands, you know. And you're counting frame rates and, uh, and checking temperatures and doing all that kind of stuff. And it was fun. Uh, but nowadays, if I want a game, I'm mostly playing games on my TV just because it's easier. Because you just kind of plug it in and it works. Uh, so, in, so,
1: wait, why not Steambox?
0: Uh, you know, I've thought about it. I, 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 it. PC games with controllers are not something that, you know... St- uh, Valve has done a pretty good job with their big picture mode to try to address that, but there's still something about using a game console uh, where it's just designed for that so-called lean-back experience with a controller um, that does not work as well on PC games. Now, having said that, if I could... Get a high-end graphics card and plug it into my Mac over uh, Thunderbolt, or buy a monitor with an integrated graphics card that was, you know, or or have something that was swappable, even potentially. I'd be all over that. Uh, I would, if I had to, you know, uh, God forbid, boot camp uh, dual boot Windows on my Mac. And be able to play PC games that I currently cannot play that I'm missing out on because of, you know, being only Mac. But I just don't have the space to build a PC tower. And I don't really have the motivation to buy a, um, a Steam box. Uh, you know, maybe if Half-Life 3 ever launches or something, I would do that. But uh, what I am hoping... Is Because realistically, let's be honest, this Thunderbolt display with graphics card is not going to have a high-end graphics card. It'll be enough to push the pixels, which is fine. That's what Apple wants it for. What would be nice to see is if Apple uses its launch as an opportunity to allow third-party manufacturers to introduce their own Thunderbolt graphics cards to market for official support for OS ten and not just some hack being put together as it is right now. And so if I, as somebody who maybe wants to push pixels, get some more power, not even for gaming, like just running Final Cut Pro and stuff like that, uh to be able to take a small twelve inch MacBook and dock it and have it turn into a super powerful workstation at home and then be able to take it on the go and
1: have nice portability and better. Let's temper that a little bit, right? Super powerful in terms of the graphics card that would be attached to it. The processor can remain the processor inside.
0: True, that is that is true.
1: Yes. Um, it, it doesn't magically become a Core i7.
0: No, but it would greatly enhance the ability of it to do things like edit video. Yes. Um, the exporting of the video is it tends to be more more CPU intensive, so that would probably still be pretty slow. But uh, in terms of uh, you know um, transferring the video files and that sort of thing, and you could you could make that a much more efficient experience with Thunderbolt and docking it and turning it into something more powerful. Um, And we've talked about this with the iPad, too, right? This ability to turn your personal computing device into the device that you need at that moment. If you need an ultra-portable laptop, you got it. If you need more of a
1: workstation, you can do it. I love that smart connector.
0: I I think that, well, it doesn't even have to be a smart connector. It could be lightning. It could be USB-C in the case of the 12-inch MacBook. Um, Whatever it's done over, uh, we have the bandwidth and the technology now to get the best of both worlds with these devices. You don't have to make those kinds of sacrifices. You don't have to make those kinds of compromises. And so it would be nice to see if OS X offers some sort of official support for that with third-party manufacturers to allow me to maybe put a high-end uh, GeForce
1: graphics card, connect to my Mac, and have it work. So, so what do you think the likelihood is of this rumor coming true?
0: Uh, it came from John Pichkowski, uh, formerly of... All things D, now known as Recode, he's at BuzzFeed of all places now. Um, hey, he has get
1: hired you get hired man.
0: He, he has a pretty good track record on this stuff. So I went from not thinking it was going to happen to thinking it's probably going to happen, and I'm excited. Um, even if it is not a high end gaming thing and it just pushes the pixels, to have that option to be able to have a super portable laptop and then dock it with a gorgeous 27 inch Retina display. That's awesome. Uh, You know, I mean, if you care at all about this kind of stuff, if if technology excites you, that's really, really cool.
1: So, in the meantime, there is no Apple display. They're selling out whatever stock they have on hand, which knowing that they manage stock well is probably not much. Right. Can we talk about the best alternatives so that our dear listeners who are actually going out and buying monitors know what to get?
0: Yeah. I mean, um, you have a lot of options out there, there's a lot of, um, 4K 4K and 5K displays that you can get. Um, and they're pretty reasonably priced. I mean, if you think about Apple's Thunderbolt display, it was like a thousand bucks.
1: Right, so, so a Dell UltraSharp 27-inch, the uh, the U2717D Infinity Edge monitor is... Uh, you get that for
0: 500 bucks.
1: Uh, yeah, Amazon 510.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's half the price of a Thunderbolt display. And it's the same size at 27 inches. So, uh, and that's you know, um, that's not a 4K one though. That's a,
1: it's a what is it? It's it's 2560 by 1440. Yeah, that's glasses. not 4K. Okay, well let's keep going then. Yeah. The the there's a 32 inch. I was going to go for the forty-three inch next. That's, yeah, that's
0: pretty big, though. We have a roundup on Apple Insider for people that are curious. There's an ASUS thirty-two yeah. inch 4K. that's okay. It's nine ninety.
1: But it's nine ninety.
0: Yeah, still cheaper than a Thunderbolt display was.
1: Okay. What about the LG, the ultra wide?
0: I mean, if you really want a screen that wide, I, I wouldn't really be interested in something like that. But certainly, that is an option.
1: Well, it's a 21 to 9 ratio, and the 21 to 9 aspect ratio is a movie theater aspect ratio.
0: Yeah, and it has two Thunderbolt 2.0 ports on it, which is pretty awesome, and it has USB 3.0 for quick
1: charging, too. So, And it's it's cheaper than the other. I mean, it's $787.
0: Yeah, I mean, you got to remember, the, the Thunderbolt display that Apple discontinued was not a Retina display. This was not the 5K iMac display that Apple's been using for the last year. So, right. um, you know, the comparable... Uh, standard resolution displays like that Dell 27-inch UltraSharp for 500 bucks It's a pretty good deal. It's comparable. I mean, it does not have the design of the Thunderbolt display, which is admittedly gorgeous, although thick by modern standards uh, and heavy. But a really nice, uh, nicely designed piece of equipment that Apple had. And hopefully... You know, when we get something later this year, it's along those same lines. Uh, you know, thin and and really great panel. I would imagine they would use the same 5K panel that's in the 27-inch iMac.
1: Let's uh, we, we we posted on our site a picture of a purported iPhone 7 enclosure,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? The case back, and the shot that we had that I saw showed the Lightning port in the middle. And speaker grill holes on one side and speaker grill holes on the other side of that lightning port. Yeah. What does it mean?
0: What does it all mean? <laughs> I mean, my guess is either one of the speaker grill holes on the left side serves as a ma- uh, mic or all of them serve as a mic. And it's just an aesthetic change. Um, I can't see a lot of benefit to uh, stereo sound on an iPhone, uh, particularly. On the bottom dude, of it when it's held in portrait mode. Dude,
1: I want I want speakers in four corners on the phone and I want it to be like the iPad Pro, but mini. I
0: I mean I guess you could do that. I don't really see that's the not point. But, um yeah, I I uh I, I think that that's just an aesthetic change that they want to do. Uh getting rid of the headphone jack. Um it just looks cleaner to have the same holes on each side of the lightning port. Uh but I wouldn't read too much into it. You know, I I had a friend ask me about it the other day and saying, What are they going to do with the space now that they got rid of the iPhone jack? And I'm like, I don't know, put another speaker there. And he's like, Well, what's the point? Like, the the people that are focusing on that are missing the point. The, The additional speakers are not why they're getting rid of the headphone
1: jack. They're getting rid of the headphone jack because?
0: Because it's a legacy item that Apple wants to encourage the death of and it allows for thinner phones.
1: I was going to go with the latter half of that answer. It chews up space that could otherwise be used for more cool stuff.
0: Right. That's really I mean, that's really what it comes down to. At, at,
1: well, so th- traditionally in iPhones, the batteries have been rectangular in shape. Correct. With squared off corners, basically. And we know that for the MacBook, they have been, and, and even for some of the MacBook Pros for a little while, they've they've been making their own battery cells that are layered in such a way that they take advantage of, Even the curved space, so that there's there's really no room left for air. It's just battery, right? Right. So by getting rid of that port, they now have more space in theory, battery potential in theory. In theory, P- people don't realize. Yes, the phones
0: are getting thinner, but the batteries in many cases on new phones are actually larger than they were before because the components inside the phone are so much smaller. The things that used to take up a lot of space, like the memory and the processor and all that stuff, are now actually much smaller components. They're they're built smaller. They're more efficient. They're cooler, and so therefore there's more space in there to put in a
1: battery. Well, let's let's talk about this for a second. So on the original iPhone, I, I have a bad habit of taking apart iPhones. Right. The original iPhone. I haven't done it in a little while, but but the the original iPhone, the battery was about a, a little larger than the size of a compact flash card, or or another way of thinking of it is if you took a, a deck of cards and you took out a, a a playing card and cut it in half, splitting it right down the center vertically, you know, so that it was it was you had two horizontal halves, yeah, right. Um, it was about that size, and the rest of it, the top part, was all phone motherboard a strip down the left was all phone motherboard Mm -hmm. and at the bottom was the antenna and the home button and speaker and mic package right right and that was pretty consistent with with some changes through the 3gs the 3gs was a little easier to disassemble the the 3gs was um a more elongated battery and more of the and, and sort of the progression of this over time was that the motherboard became a strip of printed circuit card that ran pretty much down the left side of things, and the battery grew taller and the battery grew wider over time. And now And so we're left in, with a phone where you just have a very thin strip of a printed circuit card and a lot of battery. And that's the
0: same across Apple's product lines. You take apart a part of twelve inch MacBook, you take apart a any iPad, any iPhone, and it's mm-hmm. basically all battery in there um and that is a testament to how far the rest of our technology has come and how not far our battery
1: technology has come. Well, true. And I'm I'm very hopeful that our battery technology keeps going.
0: Somebody one day is going to come through with a major breakthrough in battery technology and they're going to be the richest person on earth.
1: It'll happen, hopefully. Pray it'll in. happen. So There are a number of vendors out there that are suppliers for parts for the iPhone. And I'm thinking of TSMC, who we know make the processor chips for the iPhone. Mm -hmm. Samsung, who've made processor chips, have made memory, have supplied the displays. And, And in this case, I think the rumor is that they're supplying the OLED display.
0: Yeah, uh, th- everybody's gearing up for an OLED display for next year's iPhone, not this year's. It, it
1: sounds to me that all these suppliers are banking on their their revenue from the iPhone 7. They're, they're basically counting on the iPhone 7 to keep them in the black. Is that right?
0: Mm, well, you're conflating two different things.
1: I'm, I've got a couple of different stories going on there, but I was thinking about the TSMC story. Yeah, first.
0: so, I mean, everybody's ramping up for the iPhone 7, uh, as it's known colloquially at least. Um, that is supposed to launch in September. Um, and, you know, there's a hope that, uh, you'll definitely get the seasonal spike in sales with a new product launch, but, um, there's hope that it will be able to return to growth, uh, as we kind of talked about earlier, uh, and outperform the iPhone's success. Um, but separately, uh, Sharp, which is now owned by Foxconn and, Samsung, which are both key display suppliers for Apple, have been ramping up OLED production in anticipation of a new design for the iPhone in 2017, which is expected to have an all-glass chassis and an OLED display, among many other changes.
1: I mean, I have a report here saying that TSMC is forecasting to grow revenues by 20% in third quarter. Yeah, they're gearing up chip production. Because they think an A10 is coming.
0: Yeah, they're gearing up chip production. They're getting back in the game. Uh, TSMC was an exclusive chip builder um, a few years ago for Apple. That changed as they couldn't necessarily meet the demands that Apple had with uh, growing products. So Samsung kind of edged their way back into the chip production business. And so, uh, it's yeah, the, the rumor here
1: is, is that TSMC is going to be the exclusive for for most or all of the A10 orders.
0: That's the rumor. We'll see how it plays out. You never really know. Um, and it's certainly possible that Samsung stays in there. I mean, let's not, you know, for as much as uh, our listeners and readers of Apple Insider don't like Samsung for being a competitor to Apple, they're also uh, one of the largest chip making companies on the planet, uh, able, ca- capable of producing the capacity of ARM based processors for Apple.
1: Is there any practical reason, not not just? Uh emotional or, or otherwise, but is there a practical reason for preferring a phone with one chip in it versus the other from the supplier?
0: From Apple's perspective?
1: From from a user's perspective, the A10 from TSMC or the A9 or whatever it is. Oh, don't go down this road. The, don't
0: go down this road. Uh, there was a thing last year with the A9 processor where people found that if it was built by TSMC or Samsung, there was a different... Um, Uh, level of different power level for each one. One was more powerful than the other. But that was with a benchmark test. It wasn't with real world performance. There are going to be slight variances in parts coming from different suppliers in every facet of the iPhone, camera, screen, processor. The overall experience is supposed to be nearly identical and seamless from phone to phone, depending on the user. Some people got really worked up over where they had the TSMC chip or the Sam or the Samsung chip last year because of benchmark reports. But that was nonsense in terms of actual real world performance.
1: It's exactly the same. Thank you. Thank you. So we talked about Samsung gearing up OLED production. Is there anything we forgot to say about that?
0: No, uh, Samsung and Sharp are the ones gearing up.
1: Okay. And uh and Flexium?
0: Yeah. I mean suppliers are gearing up
1: for the next iPhone that's seasonal. Supplier's gonna supply. Mm-hmm. Um what, what's 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 going on with Spotify? I mean, do do you use Spotify first of all?
0: I use Spotify's free uh account. Because I prefer to buy my music, I don't rent it, so I'll sample something on Spotify. And then if I like the album, I'll either buy it on iTunes, or if I really like it, I'll, I'll buy it on vinyl and get a digital download code with it.
1: Okay. Um, so, we, we ran a story that says that Spotify is bumping up against the App Store. That that they want to issue an update, and that they're being told that they cannot update the app because it would compete with Apple Music. They want... Or at least that's what they said, Go go into this. Unpack this for me a little bit.
0: Nobody really knows what the app update has, but the presumption is that they're giving people a link to go to their website to sign up for Spotify so that they save $3. Apple takes a 30% cut of all sales on the App Store, including in-app purchases and subscriptions. That will soon change slightly, where if you have a subscription over a year long, then the Apple's cut will drop to 15%. However, um, Spotify charges thirteen dollars Uh, per month for new users who sign up through their app on the iPhone, and the reason for the higher price is solely because of Apple's 30% cut. If you were to go to Spotify's website or sign up through their app on the Mac or something like that, you would pay $10 a month instead of $13. So, they're raising a stink saying it's unfair that Apple takes a 30% cut of all subscriptions uh, through their app on the iPhone. Uh, They don't think Apple's policy is fair. So, They claim that they tried to push through an update to their app the other day, and it was rejected by Apple because of their uh, rules for in-app purchases. So the only thing I can guess is they probably included a link to leave the app, go to the website, and save 3 bucks, which Apple does not allow. Um, They sent a letter to Apple. They leaked it to the press. They gave it to members of Congress. Um, They're raising a stink, saying that Apple is engaged in anti-competitive practices uh, to keep Apple Music cheaper to sign up for than Spotify.
1: Right. Now, this is not the first time that the App Store has has used this uh, reasoning that you cannot compete against a built-in app. It
0: used to be that Apple did not allow you to charge less outside of the App Store. You had to have pricing parity so that you, know, you wouldn't be able to, for example, um, go through uh, the website – and you know save money that way or they they wanted to make sure that everything was priced the same and then they would still get their 30 percent cut they eventually backed off of that and so now that's why you can see spotify charging three dollars more on iphone uh than they do elsewhere
1: right I'm, I'm thinking back to the days where some of google's apps were not updated for a long period of time because apple was rejecting the the updates yeah i'm thinking of that i'm thinking of the voip apps things like that there
0: was there were some yeah some issues with apple had policies about replicating the core functions of the phone so they didn't like apps that made allowed you to make calls for example softened softened on pretty much all that stuff the policies are not as arcane as they once were um but i mean there are still some issues and you know there's there's different things like for example you can download the eBay app or the Amazon app and buy goods and services through those apps, and uh, not. And Apple doesn't take a thirty percent cut. Um, it's it's but if it's content being sold, then Apple takes thirty percent cut, and thirty percent cut of ongoing subscriptions is a little high. We've talked about that before. Uh, it's a little too much, and uh, certainly would think that. Uh, uh, Apple will hopefully revisit that again because I think even 15% is too much. What do you think the right number is? I don't think that they should have uh, a cut of sales in perpetuity, especially if uh, the service being provided is all hosted by you know Spotify or whoever. I mean, if you're paying for a Microsoft Office subscription, for example, and you buy it through iTunes, does Apple deserve to get a 30% cut of that
1: Uh, forever it's it's a valid question what do you think the counter argument is
0: the counter argument is apple has to maintain the servers and they serve up a lot of apps that are free or freemium and for them to maintain the quality of the app store and their review process and all that costs money there's upkeep and they have to make money so that's where they're gonna take their pound of flesh so to speak I understand where Apple is coming from. I just don't think an ongoing 30% cut or even a 15% cut is fair when Apple, at that point, is not really involved in it at all.
1: I, Wonder of Wonders, actually had a story this week that we published. Do you remember what it was? You talked about how we do this podcast. I talked about how we do this podcast. So this is this is the ultimate in, in navel-gazing, I suppose. But um, the as our listeners know and our our welcome to, to remind me, we have had some hiccups in our quality over the year. And we've made a lot of progress towards getting better about that. And we the, the prog- process that we use right now is sort of multi-layered, right? It's multifaceted with a lot of different apps. We, ha- we start by using Zencaster, or sometimes Skype. But today, we, we opened up Zencaster and started Zencaster. And we've been using Zencaster's voiceover IP to hold this call. Well, I should back up a step. What microphone are you using? I am
0: using the iRig Studio.
1: Right. And that's a mic that has a number of different connections. You can use it with lightning. You can use it with uh, USB. You're using it with USB because lightning audio isn't quite perfect for this kind of calls.
0: Lightning audio does not work with VoIP or anything like that. It only works with recording apps, but not person-to-person calls because of iOS coding weirdness. It's annoying because I would love to do this podcast on my iPad Pro um, because this is exactly the type of task that an iPad, I think, is great for where I don't want a million things in my face. I want to be able to focus on what we're talking about. I want to be able to focus on the podcast and have all of my attention on it. And I think that's a great use for an iPad. Can't do it.
1: And it's what's even stranger is that it used to function like this. It used to be possible to do lightning audio.
0: Skype used to work with lightning audio, and then they released an update at some point last year where they switched to the iOS core audio recommendations that Apple has, uh, which defaults to um, either the built-in microphone or if you plug in headphones to the headphone jack, it'll default to the microphone on the headphones that you plug in.
1: But there And it will also
0: use a Bluetooth source. Yeah, but there is no way to do a... Uh, FaceTime audio call, for example, or a Skype call over lightning. Although I have not tested with iOS 10 yet. Maybe Apple fixed that, but I think that's more of a developer thing than an Apple thing at that point. But Apple's recommended course of action for uh, audio calls uh, person to person is to not use lightning audio.
1: So the reason I mentioned that is that the, the sound all begins with the microphone and you know, you're using a nice microphone, I'm using a microphone, and, and it turns out my microphone is fairly affordable. My microphone cost $50 on Amazon, and my travel mic that I take with me was $12. And then I get it into the computer using a mic interface from Sentrance, uh, which is a really nice mic interface. Uh, I'm very pleased with its sound. And And one of the things that I do to compare mic interfaces is that I'll use the same microphone and make sure that I set my levels the same, using Audacity to monitor my levels. And just switching out the mic interfaces, I can tell which ones have different sounds to them and whether or not they introduced more noise into the signal. So from there, we go into Zencaster. Now, Zencaster is currently a, a web application that runs in Firefox and Chrome. And I've, I've asked and inquired, and I'm going to say it without having asked permission to say it, but he's, he's looking into, it's on his roadmap to make it a mobile application, so that it'll work in iOS Safari. Awesome. Which would be Brilliant. And the cool thing about Zencaster is that it's, it's very, very good at what it does. It has VoIP. It allows you to invite people to a call that the host sets up. You can have a chat. You can have footnotes. The chat doesn't persist after the call is over, but the footnotes can a little bit, so you can use those as references for your show notes. And it saves the audio locally to HTML5 cache and then uploads it after the show is done recording, and then it will upload those files to Dropbox as well. The cool thing about it is that it has a post-processing feature that uses Alphonic. Alphonic is brilliant. Alphonic is a website. It's an iOS app. It's a standalone desktop app. It's a ton of things. In in all of those cases, it uses the same good post-production to make our levels the same. If my levels are different than Neil's and they're a little bit higher or a little bit lower, it adjusts them. Last week when we recorded, Neil, you told me after we were done that my levels were terrible, mm-hmm, right? Yeah. They were all wrong, weren't they? They were way too low, yeah. Yeah. You listened to the show, did you? Yes. How were they afterwards? Sounded fine. Auphonic works. It really does. And I have a lot of respect for 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 George, who uh, who writes it. And the, the, the different applications are very different in terms of capability. The web app has the most amount of features in it. Um, it does things like taking text files that say where the chapters are and being able to put them into the the web and have it spit out a mp3 that has chapter markers and it's suitable for overcast. It's it's a huge Swiss Army knife tool for that stuff. It does everything. Uh, you can even use it to process the audio for movie files. If you have an mp4 that you put into it, you'll get back a movie with good audio. It's it's incredible. The desktop app is a lot more limited. You feed it two multi-track files, you get back one file and adjust it. It's It's very simple in that regard, but it works the mobile app has a button on it that you can tap to to mark where the chapter markers need to go. So, there are a number of different things going on there that make them all slightly different, but they're all both, they're, they're all very capable. They're wonderful. Now, one of the things that one of our readers commented on, our listeners commented on, it was that sometimes the amount of space between when I speak or Neil speaks is either too much or too little. And, There are a number of different timing issues going on here. First of all, there's latency over the internet, right? How fast is your internet connection, Neil?
0: Pretty fast, actually. I get about over 50 to 60 down and usually about 15 to 20 up.
1: Okay. I have 350 down and (laughs) 25 to 30 up. That's pretty good. I do okay. And someday I hope for that number to increase. But, but right now it's 350 down. So there's latency over the Internet, even though we both have very good Internet connections, because even though our down is good, our, our up is a fraction of that. So that's one part that plays into it. Uh, another part that plays into it is the timing. You know, All of this is done by chips that have clocks in them, and my MacBook Pro's clock is not exactly the same as the MacBook, as the clock inside Neil's MacBook Pro. And so those timings can get out of sync. And another thing that that takes place is when I adjust, you know, it's also the VoIP connection because just the the nature of the VoIP connection is such that we could be overlapping by a little bit if we're not careful. But knowing that we leave pauses between some of these things, I go ahead and take it to an application called Ferrite. And Ferrite is brilliant. Ferrite was written by a fellow in England, and it's wonderful. And one of the features that I, I asked him about, he was already working on. And that is the ability to tighten. One of the things that, that he does is that he allows you to detect silence and then strip the silence out. But when I did that using ferrite early on, it left all these gaps where the silence had been. And so I asked him, how can I compact all of that? And he said, Well, there's a feature called Titan. And Titan tightens up the audio file by by getting rid of those silences. And it allows you to adjust how much or how little silence you leave in. And uh, and it works great, except that sometimes I'm not as sensitive with those those adjustments as I should be, either taking out too much and we're speaking one after the other, stepping on each other's sentences, or by leaving too much gaps in. So I, I apologize to your listeners, that's something I'm working on, but that's where that comes from, is my adjustment, not the tools. The tools are wondrous. And after Ferrite, I take it to uh, to SoundCloud and publish. So I go through, what, four different applications, Zencaster, Alphonic, Ferrite, Oh, and I left out the one. Sometimes we get requests for chapter markers, Overcast, some of the other their podcatcher apps that people listen through use chapter markers. And so, sometimes it's it's when it's easy for me to, to figure out where the chapters should go, I will open up an application by another fellow. Um, I think his name is Thomas Pembroke, or Thomas Pritchard, Thomas Pritchard, forgive me, um, wrote Podcast Chapters, which is in the Mac App Store, and is very well laid out and i i put the audio file in that i press command N each time there's a new chapter and you know the the this result is that i have to listen to the podcast again i end up listening to the podcast during the course of this uh generally two times maybe three i'm sorry for the whole production and um and and the the one of the nice things about podcast chapters is besides how what else it does as well it allows you to speed up the playback So I can listen at one and a half times or two times and be able to pick out where the chapters go just a little bit faster. And then I take it to SoundCloud and publish. And and we've arrived at this because early on, as you know, the the quality wasn't what I really wanted it to be. It wasn't representative of what we can do here. And trying to just get the sound quality up goes a long way towards helping you hear the ideas we're talking about.
0: And that's how the sausage gets
1: made. Thanks for indulging me. Speaking of sausage and and stuff like that and, and, and the nitty-gritty and getting stuff to work, you were trying to work through a GitHub project recently.
0: So I wasted a few hours this week. I have finally gotten to a point where smart home accessories are cheap enough and prevalent enough um, and advanced enough that it seems like I can go beyond my Hue bulbs and maybe dig a little deeper, um, and get the smart home of my dreams. I'm about to move to a new place. And so I'm kind of planning out, um, what I want to do there and and how I want to, uh, implement things and, and, and that sort of stuff. Um, and HomeKit is growing and what it does, uh, is growing, uh, and the accessories that connect to it, the number of those are growing, but it's still not quite there yet. So
1: so, so wait, let me stop you right there. What's your ideal smart home? What is the smart home of your dreams?
0: Well, I want to be able to control the things that I have in my house that I would want to not only be able to control while, uh, in the house, but also away from it. So logical things, air conditioning, um, controlling the television would be fantastic. I don't know what channel anything is. I got 800 frickin' channels. I don't know. You know, <laughs> I don't know where CNBC is if I want to watch it, and if I try to tell my Xbox to change it to CNBC, it puts on CMT, Country Music
1: Television. So, so that's a voice reco problem.
0: Well, that's just an Xbox One problem because it's a piece of crap. I want to be able to get to a point where I can have a scene. Like right now, I have a scene. There are two Hue bulbs. I have a projector in my current apartment. And I have two hue bulbs that turn off with the, the scene of watch TV and it allows the projector to be seen adequately. What I would like to have is, say, watch TV and have it turn on all the necessary devices, the projector, the Xbox, the cable box, et cetera. Set turn off puts. the lights, everything else. And then I should be able to say, watch this channel and then some connected device would be able to automatically change the channel and everything would work with my voice. And I wouldn't have to use a remote and flip through the guide because I'm not a channel flipper. I just don't like doing that. So I want to get to that point. And there is a service. Uh, it's a GitHub project uh, called HomeBridge that allows you to take connected devices that are not necessarily HomeKit compliant and control them with Siri on your phone. Uh, I wasted about three hours yesterday on it, and I say wasted because I didn't get anything to work, unfortunately. But, um, I'm gonna continue to dig at it. If anybody who's listening has an experience with Homebridge and might be able to help me out, it would be much appreciated. Um, but I wanted to just test it out. You can run it in two ways. You can run it in uh, OS X on your Mac and have that act as a server for Homebridge and your Mac needs to be on. Or what I would eventually like to do is you can do it on a Raspberry Pi and just have that sitting somewhere in your house and always connecting. So it acts as a server for Homebridge, connects to your Wi-Fi network, allows you to use your iPhone or whatever other device to use Siri to control things.
1: Um, the, the truth the truth is that this is really a Node.js kind of software. Yes. and it, it runs on a number of things. It runs on a free NAS, it runs on Windows, it runs on OS 10. it runs on Raspberry Pi, it runs on a bunch of things. I'm thinking about running this on my router. That would be cool. You know, if you have a Synology router or a Synology NAS, for example, clearly you're able to run things on those. They have their own app store. They're,
0: it's I'm, very I'm hacked together. And the more you try to do with it, from what I've read, the more likely it is to break, With as it is with any hack project. You install plugins for the devices that you want to control. So the one that I was trying to test out um, before I get a little more advanced in this, and I couldn't get it to work, unfortunately, was a, a Siri HomeKit plugin for iTunes on my Mac. And so what it would allow me to do is to tell Siri to play an artist a playlist whatever but also to dictate which of my airplay speakers i want it to play on i have a set of airplay speakers at my desk i have a uh, set in the kitchen i have some in the bedroom and then i have a denon receiver uh that is denon denon i don't know how to pronounce it yeah a denon receiver in my living area with the with the projector that also is an airplay compliant device now, it would be really nice to be able to tell my phone to play an artist on a certain speaker, but Siri and HomeKit don't have that level of control, and that is where HomeBridge comes in. So HomeBridge has plugins for things like iTunes. It has a plug-in for my Denon receiver because it's a Wi-Fi-connected receiver, so it'll turn it on. Um, it has a plug-in to turn on an Xbox One uh, over IP. Um, it has plugins to control all kinds of devices and can also bridge smart home platforms between each other. So, for example, uh, you could, in theory, use, uh, your iPhone and Siri to control a Logitech Harmony hub which is an infrared blaster, which then controls a number of devices like, for example, the things I was talking about controlling, projector, uh, Xbox, cable box, etc. That is potentially bridging the gap and creating scenes and adding devices to HomeKit that normally would not operate with HomeKit. Because as it stands right now, there is no HomeKit protocol for infrared blaster, television, that sort of stuff. So that's the kind of smart home controls that I really want because especially when you have a complex home theater setup right it's just a nightmare to get everything working to get it all turned to the right input and on and all that kind of stuff and there's just a bunch of remotes and you're just flipping
1: that's right all, all the stuff that harmony's known for
0: that is the kind of, of thing that I would really like to see simplified with voice where I can just tell my TV to turn it to a certain channel or whatever but then there's also you know like remote control of things like um uh, your, your temperature. Uh, that's another area where I have an issue because apparently nobody makes a window mounted home kit air conditioner. So my options there are either to use a smart plug, which would turn the air conditioner on and off, but that doesn't give me any ability to set the temperature or anything like that. I could basically just tell it to turn the AC on or off when I leave my apartment or whatever. Um, or, you know, I don't know what my other options would be to make it work. Maybe HomeBridge could find some sort of way if there's a Wi-Fi connected AC unit that it would work with. Maybe there's a plug-in for it or something. But that's the kind of stuff that I want to be able to do as I envision my dream smartphone home.
1: Yeah, you won't like it, but there are plugins for Tato.
0: <laughs> See, I couldn't get that to work properly, especially with the AC unit I had at my old apartment where it would have to go through like, 30 degrees of temperature to get to the right one. So just go beep, 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 beep. It was awful. Um, so Tato does make a smart AC control infrared blaster. Uh, and they've said that they have home kit compatibility coming, but a lot of products have advertised home kit compatibility and don't have it like the Chinese brand higher H uh, A I E R. Am I pronouncing that one right? You are. Uh, they announced in September of 2015 a uh, HomeKit connected window-mounted AC unit, and it has yet to ship from everything that I can find. If you Google it, the only thing you can really find is a press release about it. So, you know, I don't know when these products are coming. Uh, at WWDC a couple weeks ago, Apple had a long list of companies that are making HomeKit products, and Hire was among those up there.
1: So, um, I'm just looking at that that image again. Yeah, they're so on the right and side. that is on that image, by the way. Yeah.
0: Tattoo's on there, Hire's on there. These are companies that pledge support but have yet yet to ship anything. So I know D Link is planning on uh, shipping out an updated version of their camera that will be HomeKit compatible. Mm -hmm. Um, And who's the other camera company? They have one coming as well.
1: Well, we know that First Alerts camera will be on that list. And we know that the August camera for their doorbell. And I think the Canary
0: as well is.
1: uh, Canary's on the list, yes, which is awesome. Yeah.
0: So, you know, it's coming, but. For example, I'm going to be in the next couple of months in the market to buy a window-mounted AC unit for my new place, and I really want to get something that I can control with HomeKit, so I can have the temperature go up a little bit when I leave, save some electricity, uh, be able to turn it down before I get home, so when I get home, it's nice and cool in my place, uh, you know that sort of stuff. And we're not there yet. There are some hacks. You know, I could use some smart plugs. I could do some things here and there to kind of act as a, as a interim for it. But HomeBridge is one of those things that I'm really excited about and hoping to get working specifically for controlling my home theater.
1: Well, HomeBridge, let's be clear, is a patch for you until official support is provided, right? Right, and I don't
0: know that Apple's in a rush to ever provide official support for uh, home theater.
1: Well, no, but if Logitech, for example, wanted to.
0: But are there the proper uh, calls within HomeKit that Apple allows? Because don't forget they had to expand the abilities of the API with iOS 10 to add things like doorbell cameras and...
1: uh, Cameras were not in the original plan. Uh, So what... So originally, the original spec was that you had had door locks, fans, garage door openers, lights, outlets, thermostats, and and now cameras, right? Uh, And you get to define... The Apple-defined characteristic types are our brightness, door state, locked or unlocked, temperature, lock state, you know, locked or unlocked kind of thing, uh, or door state was open-close, power state on-off, rotation speed, which speed, direction of rotation, uh, the target door state, the target state of these kinds of things, and the target temperature. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and that covers a decent amount of stuff, but as you say, it doesn't cover home theater. But... What I forget is is those are the Apple-defined service types and states. The, the question is, can you define your own in your own application to augment that?
0: Well, like, for example, uh, the Elgato Eve Room is yes. a product that does things that HomeKit doesn't necessarily allow for. Like, for example, it can tell the quality of the air.
1: Uh, I'm opening my Eve app right now. Right.
0: Now, there's a number of problems with that device. Uh, number one, it connects over Bluetooth to your phone, so you have to kind of be within range of it and stuff like that. Uh, yeah. but number two, it, you can't do anything with the information from it. HomeKit doesn't allow you to connect things. So, for example, uh, one potential solution if HomeKit were able to do it would be, to have a smart plug on a window AC unit and then separately have a temperature sensor that is also home connected. And I could say, if the temperature goes below 74 degrees, turn on the smart plug and activate the air conditioner to cool it down to
1: 72 or whatever, right? Um, So what Apple has are, are, they have action sets and they have time-based triggers, right? right? That's that's how the rules are constructed for, for trying to do device interaction stuff. You, you can have an action set where multiple things are going to happen at once based on a timer, or you can have a timer trigger that specifies the time for an event to happen. And location-based stuff as well, if you leave. How optionally it recurs and things like that. But they don't have uh, device chaining kind of things the way if this, then that does, for example.
0: And there's a delay with if this, then that of about 15 minutes, so... For things like if you want to keep your temperature regulated in your apartment and save energy, and you don't necessarily have a smart device for it, uh, then HomeKit is not the solution for that. And if this, then that won't be as responsive as
1: you want. So there's room for improvement here. But we haven't seen it all yet because it's still iOS 10 is still early days.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of room for improvement. There need to be more accessories. The fact that I can't find a window AC unit when, you know, a large... S- portion of the population lives in cities and has window AC units without central air. um, You would think that uh, that would be, there would be a market for that. Uh, So I'm hoping that something hits the market soon and, and does what I'm looking for. Cause I'm, I'm in the market to buy one. Um, and if anybody out there is listening and knows of one that I haven't been able to find, it's, it's kind of the Wild West right now with HomeKit. A lot of companies announced support and then realized there was a hardware component of it that they couldn't meet, and then so they never actually shipped. Um, and that's kind of where you have that list from WWDC with a bunch of manufacturers on it that never shipped HomeKit products when are these things coming out what are they going to make we don't really know yet i wouldn't be surprised if a lot of those cameras that were announced at wwdc don't even ship this year just the way that HomeKit uh, launch has gone
1: well but but all of the rough spots of needing the hardware and stuff like that were last year's problems so i, I would expect that these ones would go smoother maybe now i'm i'm just looking at so i've got the eve and i've got a withings home over there and i they both measure air quality in parts per millions and the Eve says that my air quality is excellent at 514 parts per million, and my home says that it's 450. And so, I'm not sure what the discrepancy is. Oop, there's the echo from the home speaker. Sorry about that. It's got a microphone on it, and so it's picking me up speaking and, and then playing it back through the iPhone. I apologize. But it's interesting to me that these things pick up different readings like that when they're in the same room. Um the Withings Home product is not HomeKit because, of course, HomeKit didn't have cameras until now. But the the Eve stuff is now Bluetooth, like you said, is is an interesting choice. And I would venture to say, this is my opinion, that Apple's support of Bluetooth in HomeKit is not where their attention is. Their attention is on things that are Wi-Fi or things that use a bridge to talk to Ethernet, right. um, and that they have Bluetooth in the spec, but that they really didn't didn't give it the love that we think of right. apple giving things um all of elgato's products are bluetooth HomeKit in this path uh some of the other people doing similar products not the same products but some of them similar are are using bluetooth and wi-fi in the same product and that can make a difference just in terms of connectivity between you know all of the devices right but the Bluetooth stuff does work, and the, you know it does follow the spec. I have the Apple TV four, and am able to see what the Eve is reading when I'm outside the home by virtue of the Bluetooth in the Eve talking to the Apple TV. Right.
0: Yeah, the groundwork's there for a lot of this stuff. It's just not as I'm as I'm looking to invest in it more seriously beyond the light bulbs that I have. Um, it's coming up short,
1: and. You just want Logitech to get on the stick.
0: Well, I'd like to be able to control my home theater, but I want to be able to control my AC, and and we're not there yet. The products that I've tested just aren't really that good, that reliable, or they just aren't HomeKit compatible. And I want to be able to, especially with iOS 10 and the Home app and integration into Control Center, I mean, I want to be able to just hit a button on there that says Watch TV, and, and, you know, if I have a screen for my projector that's on a motor, it comes down, the projector turns on, the cable box turns on, the lights go off. Yep. The action set. Why not? I mean, that could, that's so many things to do at once, but that's a task that you would do regularly. That's really where a smart home excels. It's like, it's like when D- voice dictation and Siri first came out. Siri was great f- for a complex tasks, like saying, you know, create a reminder to tell me tomorrow at 10 o'clock to empty the dishwasher or something like that, right? I mean, that's something that if you were to do that, you would have to open your phone, open the Reminders app, create a new reminder, put 10 o'clock, type in empty the dishwasher, save it. I mean, it's such a complex thing with so many steps that that voice – Command saves you so much time. There are other examples where it doesn't necessarily save you time, and voice commands don't really make a lot of sense. But you know, for stuff like smart homes, where you have multiple actions at once for scenes, where you can say "good night" and it turns off all your lights, for example, or you come home and things just automatically turn up without having to talk to it, location-based stuff. That's where the future of smart home is, and and that's where it needs to be going. It needs to ex- greatly expand the number of connected devices beyond light bulbs and shades and air quality measure things.
1: Well, and and the, I, I think back to when we talked with Carly Noblock um, of Home Garden Television and her own blog, uh, Carly Kay, you know, she, she said that the future of this is all of these things making stuff more convenient for right. you, right? That's that's what it comes down to, is, is the shades matter if you're sitting at the kitchen table and blinded by the sun at noon, right? right? But if you don't have that problem, then it's not a solution you need. So it's it's about having enough of the the equipment out there to make all of these things come together to make your life, Neil Hughes, more convenient.
0: One day, I'm I'm holding out hope. I'm hope I'm hoping soon because I'm gonna have to buy stuff soon for my new place.
1: I want to see pictures of the new place. <laughs> this has been the Diamond Jubilee episode of the Apple Insider podcast. I'm your host, Victor Neil. Where can people find you on the internet? Well, if you want to read what I have
0: to write, it's at Apple Insider dot com and you can find me on twitter at this is neil n-e-i-l and if you have any home kit recommendations or advice on how to set up home bridge i am all
1: ears i'm I'm victor i'm at vmarks on twitter this has been another episode of the apple insider podcast and if neil cuts playing cards in half to figure out the size of the original iphone battery we'll all hear about it next week on the apple insider podcast